We're turning first this morning to Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 47. We'll read verses 5 through 11. Isaiah 47. Verses 5 through 11. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. Sit silently and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you will no longer be called the queen of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage and gave them into your hand. You did not show mercy to them. On the aged, you made your yoke very heavy. Yet you said, I will be queen forever. These things you did not consider nor remember the outcome of them. Now then, hear this, you sensual one, who dwells securely who says in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I will not sit as a widow, nor no loss of children. But these two things will come on you suddenly in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They will Come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells. You felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil will come on you which you will not know how to charm away, and disaster will fall on you, for which you cannot atone, and destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. Revelation chapter seven, uh, 18, rather, verses 1 to 8 is our text. We'll read a couple of verses in chapter 14, verses 6 through 8. Revelation 14, beginning at verse 6 through verse 8, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Revelation 8, beginning at verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons, and a prison of every unclean spirit, and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. 
For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid. Give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she has glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come, pestilence, and mourning, and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. And let's go together to the throne of grace to seek God's blessing upon the preaching and the hearing of his holy word. Our great God in heaven, we thank you for your word and your spirit. We thank you, O God, that you have revealed yourself in the pages of Scripture, uh, that you have revealed your holy character, you have revealed your divinity, your divine power. Uh, We thank you, O Lord, that you have implanted the Holy Spirit in the heart of every believer. And for the promises that we have uh, in your word concerning both the word and the spirit. Namely, O God, that your word always accomplishes your purposes in our hearts. Whenever you send it forth, it always does what you intend it to do. and, And that you use the spirit within us to give us understanding, to shine uh, his light upon the words of Scripture so that we will understand. So as we come to this book of symbols and consider uh, what you have revealed through these symbols, would you, by your Spirit, enlighten our minds and our hearts by the Spirit himself and cause your word to come forth, both in its preaching and hearing, in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The sixth cycle of visions in Revelation chapter 17 through 19 features the judgment and fall of the great harlot. Chapter 17 and verse 1, also called Babylon the Great, chapter 17, verse 5, And here in 18, verse 2, in 1619, Babylon is associated with the great city. And from Revelation 8 
uh, rather 11, verse 8, we know that the great city is Jerusalem, since there it's identified as the city where the Lord was crucified. These clues, along with many others, identify Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, as apostate Israel, represented by the city of Jerusalem, which was the center of Jerusalem's, uh, rather Israel's, religious life. Now in the seventh cycle, the final cycle, uh, what we'll be considering next, uh, after we finish uh, 17 through 19, Revelation 21, verse 2, John sees the true Israel, the church, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So we've got these two pictures of old Jerusalem and new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. Two cities, the old and the new. And the most important question that confronts each one of you is this. To which city do you belong? Are you a citizen of Babylon, the old Jerusalem, the apostate city, fallen and judged, or are you a citizen of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, makes all the difference in the world to which city you belong. Now, chapter 18 doesn't introduce any new subject matter, but it's a part of the picture that Revelation gives us of the judgment and fall of Babylon the Great, the harlot city, Jerusalem. In chapter 17, verses 1 to 6, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls describes the judgment of the great harlot in uh, prophetic form, in, in symbolic prophetic form. And then in chapter 17, verses 7 to 18, the angel interprets the mystery of the great harlot for John, for the church of his day, and for the church of all ages, including the church today. Chapter 18's vision intensifies the vividness of this significant, uh, significant redemptive historical event, namely the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of its temple in A.D. 70. What the Bible teaches us here in Revelation 18 verses 1 to 18, is it because judgment upon this sin-cursed world is so certain, you're called to come out of it, to flee to Christ, and to refrain from participating in its wickedness, 
so as to escape judgment. We have in these first eight verses of chapter 18, in the first place, the great certainty of Jerusalem's fall. Secondly, a powerful warning to come out of the world. And thirdly, a double retribution upon the apostate city. In the first place then, in verses 1 through 3 of our text, the great certainty of Jerusalem's fall. The vision of chapter 18 opens with another proclamation from an angel. We've seen many proclamations as we've worked our way through the book of Revelation. Many uh, angels or messengers, well, we could translate this word, uh, messengers of God proclaiming uh, God's revelation, Christ's revelation. Now, commentators differ about whether this angel represents the Lord Jesus Christ or whether he's simply another one of the many angels divinely employed to convey the visions to John, identified here in, in such a way to signify that this angel is one of the greater angels. One commentator writes that there's no explicit reason for identifying him with Christ. I beg to differ. When we compare the description of this angel here in Revelation 18 and verse 1 with what is said of the Lord Jesus Christ in John's gospel alone, not to mention the many other places, uh, I think it's, I think it's uh, apparent, it's striking how the comparison in John lines up with what we read here. First, uh, this angel comes down from heaven, and Jesus said repeatedly, I have come down from heaven. Secondly, just, just as John says, this angel has great authority. So Jesus said the Father had uh, given him authority to judge. That's quite significant in the present context of judgment upon uh, Jerusalem. Third, as the la uh, land was illumined with this angel's glory, so John writes that the light of men that shines in the darkness the true light which coming out of the world enlightens every man whose glory they saw. John, John's Gospel, chapter 1. Furthermore, th this description in chapter 18 and verse 1 is, is on parallel with the description of chapter 10 and verse 1 with respect to the strong angel, which we said as we were uh, expounding on that passage uh, is clearly speaking of Jesus Christ. The parallels to uh, John's first vision in chapter 1 there make that clear. And doesn't it make more sense that Christ himself comes in this vision to John to bring the wrath of God upon the harlot city? 
and to proclaim her judgment. Jesus, remember, said in his Olivet Discourse on the judgment of Jerusalem that would take place in AD 70 that all the tribes of the land will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Matthew 24, verse 30, which would happen, remember Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 32, in the current generation of the apostles. It's very clear in Matthew 24, in the Olivet Discourse of of Matthew 24, Luke uh, 21, Mark 13, that, uh, that Jesus is speaking up until that point in the Olivet Discourse of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and not his future coming. Uh, he's using apocalyptic language, Old Testament apocalyptic language, to describe his coming as judge on the apostate city of uh, Jerusalem. The destruction of the covenant apostates manifests Christ's authority and glory in the land of Israel. And the proclamation of God's messengers uh, is consistent. Revelation 14.8 and 18.2 repeat the same message. Fallen, fallen. It's Babylon the Great. Christ here uses uh, a certain form of language, the prophetic past tense, to describe Jerusalem's fall, which is still to happen. It's coming in John's lifetime, but it's still to happen as if it's already happened. Because Jerusalem's doom is so certain. Jerusalem's apostasy has become so great that her judgment is permanent. Jerusalem, like Babylon of old, is God's enemy. The first set of descriptions in verse 2 show her utter desolation and ruin. It also makes clear that Jerusalem, and not Rome, is being symbolized by Babylon, the city under judgment. She's become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. This is in contrast to what's said of the new Jerusalem in chapter 21, verse 27. Nothing unclean shall ever come into it. We read in chapter 17, verse 3, the harlot is in a wilderness, having been made desolate by her sins. Chapter 17 and verse 16. And the desert, as we've already noted, has, uh, is the place of sin and demons. And this is exactly what Jesus had predicted in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 45. There we read, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll, I will return to my house from which I came. 
And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. This is the way it will be with this evil generation. Now, Jesus here uh, is using a cleansed demoniac, a, a, a person who has been uh, possessed by a demon, but has been, but that demon has been expelled, and he's using that as an illustration of what takes place in, in, in a demoniac, but what he's actually talking about, if, you, if we were, were to read the broader context, is he's talking about, he's, he's answering the Pharisees of Israel uh, and their demand for a sign. And so uh, Jesus says that this is what's going to happen unexpectedly to that unrepentant nation after his ministry of casting out demons uh, is finished. He spent three years, remember, casting out demons, and yet the rulers of Israel rejected their Messiah. Three years of showing them wondrous signs, miracles that proved that he was indeed the divine Son of God, and yet they still rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And of course, on an individual level, this illustration drives home the point that unless the Holy Spirit resides in a person's heart, unclean, unholy spirits may enter in, making moral changes, sweeping your house, putting your house in order, cleaning up your life by getting rid of bad habits and sinful behavior without coming to faith in Christ, without receiving him as your Savior, Savior and your Lord and receiving the Holy Spirit, will result like, your, your state will be like the state of this man that Jesus is using as an illustration, the last state will be worse than the first before you cleaned house. The next set of descriptions here uh, in verse 3 again points us to the reason for Israel's destruction as we saw in verses, uh, chapter 14 and verse 8 and 17 too, namely her, her abandonment and perversion of her calling as a teacher priest of the nations. She was to proclaim to all the nations uh, the, the teachings of Jehovah, to proclaim to all the nations Jehovah. Uh, their great God as uh, the God of, of all the nations. She has, uh, we read here in Revelation, committed immorality with all nations, with kings, with all uh, the merchants, prostituting her gifts instead of leading the nation, uh, nations to uh, the kingdom. And instead, she has joined with the nations, uh, and especially with, with Rome, in overthrowing the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now some question the identification of Babylon here with Jerusalem. They ask whether Jerusalem was really that great of an economic power so that the merchants of the world would weep and lament her fall, as we read here in Revelation chapter 18. Now, there are a couple of ways that we can make sense of this. In the first place, the vision may be keying more on Old Testament descriptions uh, of unfaithful and luxury-loving Jerusalem rather than saying something about Jerusalem's gross domestic product in the first century. For example, the descriptions of her harlotry with the Assyrians and the Egyptians in Ezekiel 16, verses 28 to 30, and especially with Chaldea, with Babylon, called the land of merchants in verse 29. And you, uh, as we've read, uh, notice the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. So it's very well possible that what the vision is conveying to John is the sensuality, the immorality of uh, Israel, the great harlot, Jerusalem, the, the, the great harlot, uh, who has plied her trade with the uh, nations of, of the earth. But there could also be a stress here on uh, the commercial activities around the temple, uh, the merchants that, remember, sold uh, in uh, the temple, who were desecrating the, the temple the corruption of temple commerce affected the worship of the nation, and that's why Jesus came into conflict with the temple merchants, Matthew 21 and John 2, with, with the money changers who he, whom he drove out of uh, the, the temple. So what's being conveyed here in these first three verses is the certainty. This is being expressed in certain terms that Babylon's fall is going to happen. It's a great certainty. And I can hear someone asking, what does the fall of Jerusalem in the first century A.D. have to do with me in the 21st century? Well, it's this. Jerusalem's certain judgment is a reminder of the great certainty of the final judgment at the end of the world. And your eternal destiny hangs upon whether you're a citizen of the old Jerusalem, Babylon the Great, the great harlot, doomed for destruction, or a citizen of the new Jerusalem, the bride of Jesus Christ, bound for everlasting glory. The certainty of Jerusalem's fall. Secondly, a powerful warning to come out of the world in verses 4 through 5. Another angel speaks from heaven, verse 4, summons God's people to come out of her. This is yet another indication that 
the great harlot is Jerusalem, representing the old and fading Judaic system of religion. It had served its purpose. And because of the great unfaithfulness and corruption that had grown up among the leadership of the Jews, God was about to visit Jerusalem with great judgment. That's why the apostles warned God's people to come out of this old system of religion, this old Judaic system of religion. Not that that system didn't have any purpose. Of course it did. It was, a, uh, it was projecting the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the sacrifices uh, were a, a picture for us of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But that's been corrupted now in first century uh, Jerusalem, first century Israel. And God's people are told, come out of her. Come out of Jerusalem. Come out of the harlot city uh, of Babylon. It's about to be destroyed. And so the apostles warned God's people to separate from them. Uh, religiously in their preaching and their teaching, urging them to align themselves instead with the new Jerusalem, the church. Right out of the gate, on the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter said to those who had been pierced to the heart by his preaching and asked what uh, they should do, and Peter said, repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then we read that he kept on exhorting them, be saved from this perverse generation. What perverse generation? The perverse generation of Israel in that day. Be saved from them. Come out from them. Acts 2, verses 37 to 40. Judaism was a vain attempt to continue the old covenant while rejecting the Christ, the Messiah. That, that form of Judaism, uh, Hebrews 6, chapter, uh, verses 4 to 8 says, is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. Old covenant religion cannot be revived. It's impossible to have a covenant without her Messiah, Jesus Christ. Israel's time for repentance has run out. Verse 5, her sins have piled up as high as the heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. That's significant, isn't it? But Because what does the new covenant say? The new covenant says that God will remember their iniquities no more. I will remember her iniquities. Jesus had foretold this crucifying generation uh, that they would fill up the measure of the guilt of their rebellious fathers and that all the righteous blood shed on earth would fall upon them. This prophecy was fulfilled in the first century as Paul observed that the Jews of his day are not pleasing to God but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. 
but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Therefore, not only was religious separation demanded that you may not participate in her sins, but physical, geographical separation was necessary as well that you may not receive of her plagues. Christ was coming in judgment. It was certain, and following the pattern of redemptive history, God calls his faithful ones away from catastrophe. He did this with Noah. He did this with Lot. And Jesus, in that Olivet Discourse, gave his followers a sign that would tell them when to flee the harlot city of Jerusalem. When you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Luke 21, verse 20. To remain is to partake of her sins, which means that such ones would also partake of her plagues, the very plagues that we saw poured out in the seven bowls of wrath upon apostate Israel of the first century. Just as God's people were called to come out of the harlot city of Jerusalem in the first century, so John called believers of his day and of all ages, including us in the 21st century, to come out of the world. John 2, verses 15 to 18, that very familiar passage Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Is Revelation irrelevant? To us today, absolutely not. This is a call to every Christian to come out of the world, to flee from the world, to flee from worldliness, and to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. More about that in our concluding application. The great certainty of Jerusalem's fall. That's what we saw in the first place, a powerful warning to come out of the world, secondly. And then thirdly, a double retribution on the apostate city, verses 6 through 8. The righteous judge of heaven demands full restitution, verse 6. Pay her back, even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. This is the ordinary restitution required by biblical law, Exodus 24, verses 4 and 7. The fact that the great harlot 
will be paid back double is yet another clue that identifies Babylon the harlot as Jerusalem. In the prophet Jeremiah, it's Israel that will be paid back double according to her sins. Jeremiah 16, verse 18. We'll uh, simply read this first reference here. Uh, also 17, 18. I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land. They have defiled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. That's, that's what uh, Jerusalem is being accused of here. That's what apostate uh, Israel is being accused of here, is uh, being a harlot, as Israel of old was accused of, uh, of being a harlot. This punishment comes on the harlot because, verse 7, she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am not a widow and will never see mourning. This portion of the text I hope you recognize is based on that condemnation of Babylon that we read from Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 47, verses 5 through 11. It's a pronouncement of judgment that would come on Israel, uh, rather Babylon, for mistreating the covenant people. Uh, Babylon of old for treating, uh, mistreating God's people of old, the God's covenant people. And here in Revolution, uh, Revelation, Jerusalem as Babylon plays that role to the hilt, mistreating God's faithful people and rejecting her Messiah. Just as Israel was delivered from the old Babylon, so also the new Israel will be delivered from the new Babylon. Because her iniquities have piled up as high as the heavens, she will receive a double retribution. And for this reason, verse 7, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. That's verse 8, uh, rather. The day of the Lord would come on Israel in a fiery judgment. It would bring swift destruction. And uh, the term day here isn't a specific reference to a duration of time. It's rather being used here to indicate the relative suddenness with which God uh, will come in, in judgment uh, without warning, uh, except to those who were in the know, who had received this warning from Jesus in his Olivet Discourse to flee from the city. Jesus emphasized that when they saw Jerusalem surrounded by armies, those in Judea must flee to the mountains. So that expression one day emphasizes that the destruction of Jerusalem would be, uh, would be swift and that it wasn't a random, a random occurrence, that it was coming as the day of judgment. That judgment of Jerusalem so long ago 
in the year A.D. 70, which we know well from history, took place when Jerusalem fell, when it was destroyed, when the temple was destroyed. That day foreshadows the final judgment of the last day. Just as Israel was judged for rejecting the Messiah, so all who reject Jesus as the Messiah will be judged on that final day. Just as the faithful ones were called to come out of Jerusalem and flee to the mountains, Revelation warns you today to come out of the world, flee from the wrath to come on God's great day of judgment at the end of time. How do we flee? How do we flee from uh, the wrath of God that is to come? By fleeing to Jesus Christ in faith. And once a person believes in Christ, genuinely and truly, the rest of their life is one of coming more and more out of the world and growing in their faith. It's not possible literally, to come out of the world short of death. And that's why Jesus, in his high priestly prayer of John 17, didn't pray that the Father would take his disciples out of the world, but that he would take the world out of his disciples. It's possible to distance ourselves a little bit, at least, from the world by refraining from some of her more notorious sins by being moral. But the only way that we can truly and spiritually come out of the world and still live in it is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul reminds us in Galatians 1, verse 4, that Christ gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present world according to the will of God, our Father. Paul's saying that you need a Savior to be spiritually separate from the world and to escape the destruction that's coming upon it. In Galatians 6.14, Paul makes an astounding statement, a tremendous statement. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. If you come to the cross and have Jesus as your Savior, you're crucified to the world, Paul says. And the world is crucified to you. And now that you have a living Savior, the resurrected Savior, you will view the world as nothing but a rotting corpse. Dear Christians, I am convinced that we will never achieve victory over our besetting sins or those life 
dominating sins until we learn to view the world as a rotting corpse, as hateful to God, something that God calls us to come out of, not be a part of, the despicable things uh, that are committed, the sin uh, that is so pervasive in, in our society today. We won't let loose our clutches on the world until we come to see the world for what it is as a corpse. Whenever you feel the lure of worldliness, our text is saying to us, look to the cross. Go to Calvary. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ and ask yourself, if he did this for me, how can I possibly have anything to do with the world that crucified him? The only way to be separated from the world is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Our text urges you, Christian, by the blood that bought you, to come out so that you will not participate in its sins and receive of its judgments. Let's pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who decreed that his only begotten Son should be given as a gift to his people, a gift to be crucified on the cross at Calvary, to take upon himself the sins of the whole world, so that we who have believed in him might not perish, but have eternal life. We acknowledge our worldliness. We acknowledge that we have not come out of the world as we ought. We acknowledge that we still cling to worldly things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, that we need to be delivered from these things, that we need to crucify these things, that we need to put sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit, even as you called us, have called us to do. So we ask, O oh God, that you would deliver us from worldliness. We pray, O oh God, for those here in this message who have not yet come out of the world and look to Christ alone by faith, who have not received him as their Savior, uh, that you would use the preaching of your word today to draw them to saving faith in Christ. Grant them, O oh Lord, uh, repentance of their sin. Grant that they might be enlightened in the knowledge of Christ that they might be persuaded and enabled to embrace Christ as he's freely offered in the gospel. And grant, O Lord, to your church uh, that we might be faithful in our day. We might not uh, be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, uh, that we might prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of our God. We ask these things in Christ's name.
Amen. Amen.